ka hoki te rai tangata, ka hira te rai kai. When human importance recedes, that of food increases. Enga iwi o te motu, tēnei te mihiki a tātou katoa, no mai ki tēnei hōtaka a te ahi kā. Ko Justin Murray, ahau. And I'm Maraia Rakraku, and you're listening to Te Ahi Kā, the Kaupapa Māori program on Radio New Zealand National. I've spent the last ten years focusing on iwi politics, uh, and that is the hardest arena to work in because of the damage done to our people by colonialism. Um... <clears throat> You know, there's scramble for mana, scramble for power, backbiting, bad behaviour, calumny, detraction, gossip. Those things are rife in many of our iwi. And those are the remnants of colonialism that the mana rangatira has been put down. That rangatira tanga is about noblesse oblige, doing your best for other people not just yourself. And we have got to restate that and reinstate it. Just one of the subjects Ranginui Walker and I spoke about. That's what's first up in this week's broadcast. Now there's a voice that should be familiar to a few of you because for the past 50 or so years, he has been a constant in newspapers, magazines, television and radio as one of the key commentators on Māori issues. It's back, na marae o te motu. We're in Blenheim this week, well, a little bit out of it, at Omaka Marae, with Kylie Nepia no Rangitane, me ngati apa. I'm Justine Murray. I'm Maraia Rakraku, and this is Te Ahika. Being a Māori is having the greatest grandparents in the world. Respecting your elders because they have earned it. Having 250,000 brothers and sisters. Fouling up the government and its statistics. Having nowhere for the kids to go and getting a visit from the police who want to see them. Not laughing at your children when they mispronounce your language. Talking tough. Not giving up the struggle for survival. Waiting patiently for another nata, buck, or tikotsi. To love power and muscles, and to be told you have to have a Pākehā permit. To know the difference between a Māori, a Māori Pākehā, a Pākehā Māori, and a Pākehā. And to beware of the last two. To never drink alone. To be able to dodge daggers at Pākehā social gatherings. To listen to all white administrators and Uncle Toms tell you that we are all New Zealanders and not to know what that is. To pray to God before a meeting. Having a Pākehā tell you it is wrong to believe in more than one God and listen to him tell you about God. Jesus Christ, the Holy Ghost, the Virgin Mary, St. Patrick, St. Francis, Joseph Smith, etc. To welcome a Pākehā at a marae with the height of Māori poetic art and to receive a cup of tea conversation in reply. To miss work because so many of your relations are dying. Fighting for the New Zealand government to save the country from the evils of communism and fighting the New Zealand government to save your land. Owning land and not being able to use it. Going to school to eat your lunch. Watching the teacher teach the other kids. 
punching a Pākehā in the mouth for saying you are dumb. Getting your Pākehā spouse to go and ask the landlord for the flat. Belonging to a particular tribe which is the best in the country. Believing that your canoe is most certainly better than the Queen Mary. Having your friends and relatives accuse you of being a traitor if you earn more than $7,000, wear a tie and drive a new car. Thinking there's something wrong with your television when it appears to be always hooked up to Great Britain. Watching Tarzan save Africa. Liking Air New Zealand's tail. Feeding everyone who comes to the door and hunting for your best china for the parkers. Running yourself broke to service the marae to service the whole world. Being Māori is hard. Being Māori is sad. Being Māori is to laugh. Being Māori is to cry. Being Māori is forever. What you've just heard was written by Rangi Nui Walker in 1978 and published in his book Nato Tohe Tohe, Years of Anger. At the time he wrote it, he was the chairman of the Auckland District Māori Council, a position he held from 1974 until 1990. He was also writing for The Listener with the regular column that formed the basis of his earlier books, the one we just mentioned, Ngato Tohe Tohe, Kafafai Tonu Mato, Struggle Without End, and Ngā Pepa Aranginui the Ranganui Walker papers. You'll hear later on how he believes having his work in print serves a higher purpose of always being on record. Keep in mind that what you've heard was pretty controversial eh, in those days. Having a Māori disagreeing with mainstream Aotearoa was virtually unheard of, especially doing it so publicly. And believe me, as you'll hear a little later, it took a toll on his family life, but maybe not so much when you see how everything panned out with his whānau and I guess you can attribute to his handling by some Komatsua when he was a young fella. Now, last week I was at an event honouring Ranginui for his years of work and the contribution he has made to Matauranga Māori. But first, let's hear as he relives some of those early childhood memories. Grab a hanky, because it's a tearjerker. Ranginui. <coughs> I can tell you, it's a long way from the Rahui Valley to Wellington. <laughs> I was brought up, and in fact I think I would be one of the last of the generation that was brought up in a traditional extended whānau hapu situation at Rahui. Why was that? Because the major portion of our land was confiscated by the Crown in 1865 and six hapu were jammed into the Waiowa Valley and the Rahui Valley and on the tableland at Omarimutu. Living at a subsistence level in my household, there were two queer with moko, and they were most indulgent towards me. There was also a koroa, who seemed to spend most of his day locked away in a room, singing motetea, what seemed to me, as a four or five-year-old, songs of a bygone age. Then there was an uncle and his wife, and their son living in as well. It was a loving, safe environment. Everyone in that valley was whanaunga, 
or uncles, cousins, queer, koroa. We shared things. Most of you know about that. Tēni me te manaaki, te whanaungatanga, te arohoki te tangata. My father would come back from the bush with a pico full of kereru. We'd sit down and have a kai, and then the nannies would peel off the skin off the legs of the kereru and rouge my cheeks with it, and then send me down to the house a hundred metres away where my granduncles were. And when I arrived with the red cheeks, they knew there were pigeons waiting for them. <laughs> it was an ideal world. I was never beaten as a child. There were no child homicides in that valley. But it was an unreal world. Because outside was the real world, dominated by the coloniser. In the end, my father's Lebanese uncle came and fetched him and said, hey, you can never get ahead as long as you're having to feed the whole whanau. So he abandoned the little farmlet to his brother and we went to the other side of the town to live at a place called Kukumoa, where all the military settlers had taken up their farms. I was only five years of age when I abandoned that place of nativity, that nurturing place. And I had to, I soon realised that this other was the real world because all the power brokers were Pākehā, the school teachers, the policemen, the judges in the courts, the shopkeepers. They controlled everything. So I realised that this was the world that I had to live in, come to terms with and deal to. And so I worked hard at school and was always near the top of the class and was eventually sent away to St Peter's. So at the age of five, I had separated from my umbilical cord. At the convent school, the very first day I was there, I realised, I found out why it was my town cousins, none of them could speak Māori. Because I was immediately dragged before the nuns and castigated for speaking Māori. Not punished, but ticked off. And that's psychologically damaging in itself to a five-year-old. So the natural uh, response to that is to suppress your language, to suppress your culture. This is the world I'm going to succeed in. Then I was sent away to St Peter's Māori College. That caused further alienation. I talked uh, earlier about the kumara. That was about the extent of my Māori knowledge. I never had the time to go with my father into the forest to learn the forest law. So that part of the Mātauranga Māori was denied me while I was sent away to college to learn Pākehā knowledge. And when I came back for the holidays, my mother put me to work in the local Shelfoon and Francis store, and I was welcomed by Edward Francis. Oh, haramai rangi te Pākehā. <laughs> I didn't understand what he meant. I was just being me. But that's how strongly I had been influenced by Pākehā education. 
then I became a teacher. Now, there's very few of you in this room who can remember the time of our oppression and domination in the 1950s and the 1960s. We had this huge monkey of British imperialism, colonisation, sitting on our back. That the discourse one was one way we were be being defined totally by Pākehā. As an up-and-coming teacher, I'd be invited to in-service courses. And there they were talking about the work of David Reisman, uh, about children being culturally deprived. And here am I saying, no, I'm not culturally deprived, I'm culturally different. But it's very difficult to tell the dominating class there is another world, another worldview, another reality. Then later on, uh, I was put on the National Advisory Committee on Māori Education that advised the Minister. And Tūrō Royal and I were on that committee. And we would make wonderful resolutions about how to fix the world from the Māori position, and we would go away and park here administrators in the Department of Education just picked out which resolutions they would follow through. And the main ones that we thought would bring about transformation were left untouched. So I had the feeling of always being on the wrong side of the table, like Oliver Twist as a supplicant. Then in 1992, I was invited to Wellington to meet with uh, John Hood, the CEO of NZQA, and invited to become one of the chair panel, uh, chairman for the panels of degree accreditations. <coughs> we were inducted, told what the job was, and then I was asked, how much would you like to be paid? Now, I'm not one to talk of money. I said, well, I don't know. You tell me. And he offered me two levels of payment. And I gasped at the levels of payment. I said, oh, the lower level one would be fine. And so I agreed to do this job. And I thought, by golly, but when it came to the very first degree we did at Awanuiarangi, um, the quality analyst was Helen Patterson, the sister of the Governor-General, um, Dame Sylvia Cartwright. She was a lovely lady, but it wasn't until years later I found out she was dyslexic. And then I learned about the era of user pays. We were welcomed at this marae, and there on the paipai was Sid Mead. And this is what he said in the Whaikōrero. We are a poor people. We have no money. We need you to approve this degree so we can get the students to get the money to pay the teachers. <laughs> so I just went like that, message understood. Then in the course of the hearing, I learned from Helen that the applicant institution is up 
for a Puthia of upwards of $20,000. The accreditation costs to assemble the panel, their travel, their accommodation, their daily payment. And I was aghast at this. Here was this institution saying, we've got no money, and how are they going to pay for this? So I immediately said to, her, to uh, the Māori members of the panel, and this is one of the, the good things about NZQA at that time, they had the wisdom to pick a mainly Māori panel to do accreditations for Wānanga, which made it easy, because we understood what it was about. And I just suggested that we forego our daily payments for this uh, hui, which they agreed to. And that's the commitment that we made towards the struggle. A few years later, I was incensed when uh, this uh, CEO from NZQA, I think his name was Blackmoor, was flying backwards and forwards across the Tasman. I was so angry about it, I wrote to Helen Clark, the Prime Minister, and said, hey, this is the sacrifice that some panellists are making. We're not accepting the full payment in order to support the Wananga to survive and to get going. And that's always been my kaupapa. Even though I believe that a man uh, deserves payment for a good day's work. But in actual fact, um, we only took half pay when we worked for, uh, for Wananga as a contribution to the struggle. <coughs> the second degree we did... Excuse me. The second degree we did was at uh, Waiariki Polytechnic. Wharehuyu was with me. We were formally welcomed on the marae. <clears throat> now, everywhere you go, you get welcome, from a, just ordinary whakatau in a room, to a pōwhiri, to a challenge. <clears throat> we had three wero that day. <clears throat> and I thought to myself, gee, that's for Governor's General, not me. <laughs> and believe me, the Aroa, the Aroa um, Paipa is quite intimidating. <laughs> all these dressed in black, all these men, all these women. <coughs> and in the Faikororo, they admitted their weakness. <laughs> <coughs> We've come to support this degree to put our wānanga in here to be taught. Why? Because we have no speakers on our marae. They're dying out. At the end of it, I turned to the council member. Do you understand the obligation that's being put here? These people are giving you their knowledge Pardon me. <coughs> Pardon me. to transmit to the next generation. <coughs> That's a grave responsibility. It's all right you've got a Māori CEO in Albertana. He's put a marae in place. <coughs> He's got a kaumātua in Hikohoepa. What happens tomorrow when he's gone? No sooner said than done. 
constructively dismissed. They're still paying for it, Toby. Last year, I was asked to audit Kwaeriki. <coughs> oh, it's okay. <coughs> the, yeah, the trouble is, you see, I got a Ngapuhi bug from. Warm water, yeah. A tribal tribunal hearing a couple of weeks ago in a tent, wet, windy, all that big hongi lying up. God, where do we hear the mata? <clears throat> <clears throat> so last year I audited the wana, um, Wairiki, and I pointed out what they had done. They shot themselves in the foot when they constructively dismissed. Uh, <coughs> Ngāti Pikiao had seceded and gone to support Aotearoa Wānanga in Rotorua. Adohapu followed suit. <coughs> I duly delivered my report, and then last year when Albert died, we went to the Tangi, and I was gratified to learn that the CEO had gone to the Tangi and apologise to Tarawa. That, to me, is bringing about an important transformation in our society and our culture. <clears throat> One of the degrees we did at Waiariki was a Bachelor of Māori Tourism, and that was Albert's idea. So we sat and heard all the evidence. <coughs> and one of the panellists was from Otago University, who taught a postgraduate degree in tourism. And the thing about universities is they're very jealous about degrees. They had a monopoly on degrees. <coughs> it was the universities who laid down the parameters for degrees how many hurdles there were, and how high the hurdles were. And I know from inside experience, they were never like that themselves. So there was this huge requirement put on these new institutions that had no experience. <coughs> and so we had this academic, his name was Phil Kersley from Otago, who adopted the gatekeeping role on behalf of the academy. <coughs> And as we hear the evidence, gradually a consensus builds up, yes, we will approve this degree or not approve it, or we will approve it with requirements and recommendations. <clears throat> so we're getting to that point. But this gatekeeper was insisting on his kaupapa that the teacher of the degree had to have a PhD, <clears throat> the leader of the program. So we had no quarrel with that, and that became the requirement. So I read my report out, and when I finish, 
Up jumps Albert. Eki eki, go away, kotoki to tohutohu mayamata. We're the experts on tourism. You don't tell us. And this poor Pakeha fella, he was at the door waiting for a fast car to get him to his airplane. <laughs> and he didn't know where to stand and fight for his kopapa or not. So those are the, some of the, the, the hard case things that, that we did uh, in those NK, NZQA hearings. <clears throat> But for me, the most important thing about it was empowerment of our people to getting this monkey off our back. <clears throat> when we were doing those degrees in Waiariki Polytechnic, we had an all-Māori panel except for one, one Pākehā, and he was learning the Māori language, and we were able to conduct business in Māori. Now, that's a first in New Zealand education, to conduct your business entirely in Māori. <clears throat> so that is part of the cultural comeback uh, in our own time. <clears throat> I was also part of the <clears throat> New Zealand University's academic audit unit at that very time. And there was a, a head of that unit whose name escaped me, David somebody. And he was um, a, a driver, <clears throat> and he had a, a treaty section in his audit. And I learned a great deal about that, of ensuring that institutions were treaty compliant. In due course, um, I was invited to do a treaty audit when I retired in 97 by um, Otago University. So I go down there, I'm welcomed at the airport by the assistant vice-chancellor woman. We go to the university, I'm led into the uh, Deputy Vice-Chancellor's office and I see two Māori sitting on one side and I wait for them to stand up and mihi to me. They don't. Culturally unsafe, I couldn't mihi to them and I knew they were ngaitahu pakeke. One of them was Ellison, <coughs> Edward Ellison. So that goes into the report. Years later, when I ran across Janine Hayward, who's a political scientist, I said, how are you guys getting on? Well, we're still working through your resolutions. Mm -hmm. So bringing about social transformation is slow, hard work. <clears throat> then there was a, a situation of a trial of charters and profiles uh, in the South Island, so 10 institutions were picked out. And it took place in the Ngaitahu board offices in Christchurch. And as I was going in, I ran into Tamaire Tahu. I said, Tamaire, how are you getting on? Oh, OK, <clears throat> what about that, that audit I did? He said, I produced a treaty paradigm for the, for the university. I put it to the vice-chancellor, and he turned it down. I said, what? See how hard the struggle is? And so Tamare resigned. And that pulled out Ngā Tapuai Orehua from their relationship with that university. And here they are fronting up to an audit, talking that they are treating them blind. <coughs>
So NZQA, um, I've done this work now almost 18 years. This is the 18th year. Um, it's been a learning curve for me, for you, for all of us. <clears throat> but above all, it has been empowering for Māori institutions called our whare wānanga. And I'd like to uh, congratulate the people who formulate the, de the degrees, who lay down the policies in those wānanga to meet the compliance required by the universities. <clears throat> the sad thing about universities is that they don't live up to their own uh, quality assurance mechanisms. When there's a dispute, a long-running fight in a department, it could go on for three years before they decide to do anything about it. And you, they call in an audit. And even then, when the recommendations are laid down, they mightn't always follow them out. In one instance, uh, we made certain recommendations about redeployment of personnel to keep this going. And I'm talking about Victoria University, which had the first social science degree in that university that produced people like John Rangiho, Ngamaru Raijino, uh, and Delamere, <coughs> who had a great part in assisting our people throughout the 50s and the 60s. They abolished that program, and so we're all the poorer, simply because they couldn't settle a fight within their own ranks. Now, despite that, of course, the universities are the academic keepers of the flame. They provide the benchmark that we aspire to. And I'm satisfied <clears throat> that our wānanga are treading that path. There is a tension trying to meet NZQA requirements, degree requirements, but also Ahuatanga Māori requirements. For instance, when we did a, a Bachelor of Māori Business Administration at Waikato, I couldn't see any difference from that degree, uh, with that degree from other degrees. <clears throat> so I said, Kahete Ahuatanga Māori, Kahanga Kororo, Monga Puari Māori, Monga Kaporaihana, Federation of Māori Authorities. So make sure that your curriculum incorporates the Māori world. So uh, I think perhaps I'd better conclude at this point. Um, Michael alluded to uh, one of my regrets in life was not having the time when they were little to play with them, to do things for them. <clears throat> but when you do have times, uh, Sometimes it backfires on you. When we finally got uh, the leisure time, we had our batch, we had our launch, and I promised to take the boys fishing the next day. Now, I've been a fisherman and a seaman from way back. Never been seasick in my life. But on this particular morning, I woke up feeling a bit seedy, so I said to Deirdre, I'm not going fishing today. Oh, you promised the boys. 
promise them. Yeah, okay, okay. So we went out and we anchored and we started fishing. Didn't go very far out, I couldn't stand it. And then I started to feel queasy. Wanted to throw up. Do I throw up in front of the boys and show this weakness? Not at all. I thought, I know what, I'll climb through the front and I'll pretend to fix the anchor and have a sail over the front, over the bow. So we do that. And here's this little bugger, Stuart, peering through the window. <laughs> hey, Michael, Mike, <laughs> Daddy's being sick. <clears throat> so they find out in the end that their hero has feet of clay. I'm sorry that I couldn't speak of many other things that would be worth putting in front of you today. Ranginui Walker sharing some stories from his early life that I guess comes into play at events when you have been honoured and you look back on your achievements. So at the event last week, Mariah, people got up and spoke about Ranginui, including his son, Professor Michael Walker. That's right. And the room was laughing when they spoke about his signature steely gaze, the old sussing you out stare that, of course, I got when I nabbed him for a cordial. I started off by asking him how he felt about the day. Well, it's a, <clears throat> it's a wonderful day. I'm touched by the tributes. Um, and it's a celebration of the growth and development of Māori knowledge. I asked whether he felt isolated being so outspoken publicly about Māori and Pākehā relations at a time when no-one else was. That was certainly the case in the 1970s, um, and I was fortunate that I worked in the university where they have a, a value that the people who work in the university have the right to be the critic and conscience of society. And being Māori and being part of the Māori Council, I was able to do that. Uh, And I was able to speak from a position of authority as the head of a Māori District Council with uh, something like 36 Marae committees behind me. We would have our meetings, we would discuss the problems, the issues of the day, and people would talk for hours, and at the end of the day, I would have to cut through all the words and decide, okay, this is what they're talking about, these are the resolutions of the day. And then those would go out into the public arena, and then we'd get um, feedback from the public, uh, criticism, Uh, that's Dr Walker's, that's troublemaker, a stirrer, But I was warning them of the anger and the resentment that was to come from groups like Ngā Tamatoa, the Māori Land March, and even right up into our own time, uh, the foreshore and seabed hikoi. So I was part of all that from the 1970s right up until recent years. And with all of that firepower that saw Ranginui Walker representing the interests of marae and hapu around the wider Auckland area, I then asked, what was the equivalent body today? Well, the whakapapa is kotahitanga, kingitanga, uh, ngā porupiti, the prophetic movements, ratana, te kōti, 
young Māori party at the turn of the century. Māori councils, they died out. <coughs> Māori Women's Welfare League just after the war. Māori councils again in 1962. And that's gone weak now and has been surpassed initially by the Tribal Council, uh, the Tribal Congress. But that didn't last long. But the ethos continued and it's now come out in the Māori Party, that's in Parliament, but also in the Iwi Leaders Forum. That's the whakapapa of Māori political movements. And so the Iwi Leaders Forum talks to the Prime Minister. This is what the Māori world is talking about and this is what you should do about it. With the level of fierce intellectual activism and historical knowledge associated with Anginui Walker, I wondered if it was present in modern-day Māoridom. Well, we saw evidence of it in the room today. There, there are people there who are doing a, a policy and political analysis of where we come from. The Kohanga Reo movement, it's not a total answer, it's a partial answer. Kura kaupapa, wānanga. But we still have uh, residues of the colonial mindset that we have to deal with. Mm. And that colonial mindset, every now and again, surfaces as it did in the One Law for All debate roused in 2003, 2004 by Dr. Brash and the racism and angst it stirred up in our country. Then the foreshore and seabed march the formation of the Māori Party, which to some extent has released the steam out of that issue. Uh, but the issues are ongoing, the pain that Māori people suffer by go from government policies, such as the imposition of higher costs for GST. It's the poor, uh, the underprivileged, the unemployed who will suffer under that policy. Which led me to asking whether Māori intellectuals have become passive and less outspoken than they've been in the past. One of the problems is people are afraid of speaking out. <clears throat> if you head, raise your head above the par parapet, you can expect to be attacked. And one of the most recent to be attacked was Rongawetere when... Uh, he created the largest tertiary institution in New Zealand. Its numbers surpassed the Auckland University. They got a big slice of the budget, and those other institutions became jealous of it. They complained to the minister, and so the government attacked Rongawetere. And there was no one, not one member in that parliament, could produce a track record to match what Rongawetere did from the time that... He worked in the community for Pākehā, building swimming pools, raising funds for good causes for the general community. He was uh, Rongo, the go-to man. They called him Rongo, the go-to man. But when he wanted to build on Marae on campus at Taumutu High School, none of his Pākehā mates wanted to help him. So he was left stranded. But he went and did it. Then he built the Kōkuri Art Centre, the Māori Art Centre. Then on top of that, he built the um, Aotearoa Institute. Then on top of that, he built the Wharewānanga or Aotearoa. Now, these are tremendous uh, 
accomplishments for a man who had no resources except the brains in his head and the power and the muscles of his body. Because in building the shed, which was the basis of the Kōkuri Arts Centre, he got his hands dirty in dismantling the building, shifting it, levelling the site and, and putting that in place. So I would stack up Rongo Wetere's achievements in New Zealand against anybody and he will come out on top. Describing a situation I wasn't aware of, combined with such intense intellectualism and the accurate memory of key historical events, I asked Anginui Walker who held that position now. Well, um, good question. I try to uh, write these, this stuff into books. That's why I'm still writing books now. Um, I leave lecturing and conferences to other people because it's time for the younger ones to do that kind of stuff for their reputation, uh, for their um, academic growth. Uh, people ask me to, to go to conferences and do um, keynote speeches, but I refuse because I prefer to uh, use my time and energy on, first of all, uh, the Waitangi Tribunal, because that's settling our grievances, getting the history put on the table and into the record, uh, and to NZQA, uh, do reaccreditations uh, for Wananga and Polytechnics, empowering our Wananga to educate people who hitherto have been uneducated. That's empowering people because knowledge is power. The power structure is very seductive. <clears throat> I remember being put onto one commission, I think it was called the um, Queen Elizabeth II Trust. And all my travel was paid for, and we stayed in the Geyserland Hotel in Rotorua, flashiest hotel I'd stayed in for a long time. And on top of that, I was paid $60 a day for meetings attendance fee. Now, that was in huge contrast to the work I was doing in the Māori Council for nothing. In fact, it actually cost us. Uh, you know, we had to do our own taxi fares, find our own accommodation whenever we had Māori Council meetings in Wellington. And I thought to myself, Rangi, be careful. You might be seduced by this high lifestyle and power. And so I was always on my guard not to take such things for granted. For instance, even now, as a member of the Waitangi Tribunal, I have a credit card for taxis. Now, I have no trouble in distinguishing between my personal credit card and this tribunal credit card. I use it only for tribunal business. And when my wife and I, she always accomplishes me on the tribunal hui, we stay in the same hotel, but when it comes to dinner time, she pays for her own dinner so that no one can point the finger at me and say, oh, he's on the take. I think it's absolutely uh, imperative that you keep your moral integrity on such matters. And if you are in a morally righteous position and you, if you s spend your life searching for truth and when you find what you think is truth, you proclaim it, then you've done your social duty, and that is the strongest defence you have from public attack. 
having spent most of his career focusing on wider Māori issues, inevitably the focus narrowed to iwi politics in the past 10 years. That is the hardest arena to work in because of the damage done to our people by colonialism. You know, there's scramble for mana, scramble for power, backbiting, bad behaviour, calumny, detraction, gossip. Those things are rife in many of our iwi, and those are the remnants of colonialism that the mana rangatira has been put down that rangatiratanga is about noblesse oblige, doing your best for other people, not just yourself. And we have got to restate that and reinstate it. And as for his greatest accomplishments to date, well, whānau, of course, the very whānau he felt he neglected in the early part of their lives. My greatest accomplishment. Um, A successful marriage. <laughs> Yes, yes, a happy marriage, a a successful marriage. And, uh, well, I didn't have much time to um, play with my children when they were young because I was too busy doing Māori council work and doing my own professional work as well. So um, that's that's been my experience. But later in life I was able to make make that up to them by taking them, my boys especially, taking them fishing. Successful grandchildren... And now where I'm looking at the next generation uh, coming along, the great-grandchildren. Ranginui Walker, nor Fakato here, calling it as he sees it, as usual. Nā mihi atu ki a e te rangatira. In our series Nā Marae o Te Motsu, or Marae of New Zealand, we've hit the top of the South Island. Hey, Stuart Bull, we're still trying to get to you into the Marae at Goa, and those ones are at Hokitika. Now, this series has taken both of us, uh, more so you, Mariah, because you've worked on this project that is to, well, go to each Mariah for how long now? It's probably been about three years, Justine. And the great thing is that what we're doing is collecting taonga kōrero neha. It's an opportunity for our people to profile their Mariah. Now, while every now and then I've covered Mariah in the North Island, we really need to tick off those ones in Te Waipounami, the South Island first. So far no ma. Kia ora, Stuart Bull. Get in touch with us, eh? At teahika at radioNZ.co.nz. That's T-E-A-H-I-K-A-A at radioNZ.co.nz. And you spoke about Tonga Kōrero Maraia. So remember whānau, to see previous Nga Marae o Te Motu pictures and kōrero, you'll find that we put extra kōrero onto the online version of the programme. Head to radionz.co.nz forward slash teahika. Click onto the bit where it says older programs and you'll find the info there. When we visited Marae in Te Waipanamu, South Island for instance, usually what we ask is why was the marae built in the first place? Sometimes, for example, Nahoe Farm Marae in Christchurch it was to establish a marae for the Māori community who found themselves living in the rohe and they didn't whakapapa there. So as the name suggests, Nahoe Farm. It was for the four winds. It was for all cultures, and it was a way of whānau to continue to stoke their ahika. And then there are some pretty serious reasons for a marae, as was explained by Kylie Nepia, Norangi Tane Mingati Apa. In their case, it was the ongoing problem of holding tangihanga at some of the homes of the whānau that spurred on the local komatua at Omaka Blenin. And that's really the humble beginnings of Omaka Marae. Anaiti Kōrero, Justine Laua, called Kylie Nepia. Ngā marae o te motu. 
me, me penei rā te kōrero, ka tūau ki rungi ki tōku mai ngā tapua tapu wai o Wanaku. Ka arere whakararo kia kaukau wai au i ngā wai tuku kiri o ku mātua tūpuna, ka rungo nei au i te kupu kōrero keipote te wairau. Ka arere rā ki roto ki te marae o maka, ki roto rā i te whare tūpuna ko te aroha o te waipaunamu, ko te wānui tēnei o Ngāti Ape ki te rātō, Ngāti Kuia o Rangitāni, me ki a kura haupo waka, kura haupo tangata, kura haupo ki te waipaunamu e koko ia e arai. Kia ora rawatu, Kylie Motera, me me ki tō pepeha. What is it that you that you do here with, within the, the, the marae? Uh, I'm the development officer for Omaka Marae. I've been employed here for the last two years. Uh, However, always been a part of the marae, grew up on the marae, um, and yeah, the marae was a, a very strong focal point in my life, um, and now have the opportunity to, to give something back to, to the whānau, to the hapu. So are you like many uri out there who kind of fly the nest, learn the skills and come back? Yeah, uh, so basically born and bred in Blenheim, and then... When I was around about 18, my grandmother discovered a place called Te Wānongo Raukawa. Got the opportunity to go up there for about four to five years. Uh, Is this an ōtaki? An, an ōtaki, yep. And then I got a Bachelor of Hapu Development there, came back, worked within the Māori health promotion field and, and done a whole lot of um, te reo Māori strategies and stuff like that. And, and yeah, now um, working for the marae. As mentioned, we're at Ōmaka Marae. Not the best of days. Is this a what's a, what's a typical? What's the weather like down here? Well, no, this, this <laughs> definitely isn't a typical day. In fact, we have a fakatoki that says Kaipote te Waido, which means that the sun will always shine on the Waido, uh, except for today. So you know, this is um, a pretty horrible day. But you know, um, <laughs> hey, it's the second day of winter. Yeah, yeah. But um, no, it, it's normally a, a very warm place, very sunny. But it does have a tendency to get a bit cold, a bit yes, makariri bit during makariri. winter. So we are standing out um, under the uh, the mahu here in, in of the Farinui, um, and we're looking out towards the Aotea. And could you just describe it, please, um, Kylie? I, I guess that the first point of call is to say that when we first moved on, and when I mean we, it was way before my time, but when we moved um, onto Omakamurai, this was nothing but a barren uh, field. Uh, and so if you could imagine rocks being everywhere, um, it's dry, um, hay-like grass growing everywhere, and, and it was pretty much a ruin. Um, and no one else uh, was doing anything with the place, and it was barren. Um, and then around the 1960s, they formed... Um, a group called the Marlborough Māori Community Group. Uh, and that group was established um, to talk about different kaupapa Māori things. Um, and one of the main points that were coming, came out of that hui was the fact that, um, and knowing that there was around time of urbanisation and all that kind of stuff was happening, uh, that we didn't have anywhere to take our two papaku and to have our tangi. And so what was happening at that time is that we were taking them back to our homes in little um, streets in Blenheim, and the next-door neighbours neighbours were freaking out. Right, so this was the 60s. This was the 60s, and you know, and so you were having big busloads of Māori turning up, and, and not only were the neighbours freaking out, but in terms of tikanga and kawa, we weren't able to carry those um, processes out properly. We weren't able to poroparaki to our... To our uh, to and karanga. And, and karanga, and, 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 and even just cooking. And, and whare paku and all those logistical things. So 
a group of our kaumātua got together and they started to talk about the, the, this problem, this take that they had. And one of the things that they come up with was that they wanted somewhere, whether it was a marae, a hall, a whatever, somewhere where they could first and foremost hold tangi. So that was really the, the, the main kaupapa of the group was to, to go down that road. And then after a time, they, um, they got some momentum and they were gifted this place. Now, this place used to be an old Air Force place. Yeah, because the, uh, we're just down the road from the Omaka Aviation yep. Heritage Centre. Centre. Yep. And so the whole of Omaka was a big, av- it's got a big aviation history. If you look just over to the right of the Marae, there are these old barracks there, uh, which are where the cadets used to um, train and all that kind of stuff. The old Farekai. Uh, which was the first, that, that was our first whare nui, it was our first, that was where we had our whare mate, it ended up being our kohanga, it's now our kaumātua lounge, that was the first building that we ever had on this site, and that itself was used um, within the Air Force context, I think it was some office. So um, the building was already here? So, so that building, the old building um, was already here, now that building's at least over 150 years old already, um, and, and when you go inside of it you can tell that it has that type of modi and that, um, I mean, it's, it's now the Komato lounge. And when people walk in, it you know it's just got this real nice homely feeling. So and it kind of does look like a like a house you could perhaps find down a residential yeah, area. It's very much so. Mm. And you know, so it's got a lounge and it's got a TV, and then off that comes our big dining room, which we can um, cater for about eighty people. Uh, but that that building there was was here before everything else. And so that building was the building that we started with. Um, over time, we started to uh, extend first our kohanga reo which was situated at, at the front of the marae. And then around the 1981, Laurie Duckworth, uh, who was one of our kaumātua, developed a plan to start building a whareirūnanga. Uh, now, Laurie Duckworth and my grandmother, Kath Hemi, uh, were very instrumental in terms of uh, driving the vision. She's still very much the, the matriarch of the marae. You say whare wānanga. Oh, whare runanga. Sorry, whare runanga. Are you talking about the... The, 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 the whare nui? Right, the uh, whare nui. So at that time, that, that's what the description was used, was that it was a whare runanga, and then over time then it, it turned into a whare nui. So the, the, the building of the, the whare nui here, that started in around 1981, and that was around the time of the Maxis courses. Yes. Um, and so you had these these Māori access programs, trade training type. Trade training like at Rihua Marae. Yeah, and, um, yeah, those type church. of... Um, and, and so they were very much young people. Uh, they were disenfranchised from their culture. And this was a way for them to learn some skills and, and learn about their cultural identity. And, and you'll find that most marae were built under that, that scheme. And that would have been around the height of the marae. So, so you could be here on any given day and there are about 60 different students, whether it was on the horticulture course, the language course, the weaving course, the carving course, so on and so forth. And so this marae, whilst there was very much the Komatua Council and they were the, um, the drivers of the kaupapa and, and the visionaries, this marae was very much built by um, young, young people. Māori, Pākehā, um, other nationalities, this was very much seen to be a, a, a communal marae. There wasn't a, a, 
a day that went by that the marae wasn't hosting some type of hui and, and, and you know it would come about 10 o'clock and we've got school the next day and we'd be crying because you know we don't want to <laughs> leave the path type of thing um, you know but and, and sadly that's not like that anymore but you know uh, our life and the way that we live our life has changed and people are more busy um, yep. you know so on and so forth but uh, yeah there, there was a cool time and so we had a number of carvers that, that, that helped carve the Farinui. Uh, Reggie Tomset, uh, who's one of our local boys, went up to the institute up in Rotorua. Mm, uh, yep, yep. Mari uh, Arts and Crafts. Uh, te Puya, te Puya yeah. now. Mm. Um, and um, went through his training there and came back and was credited to, the, to be the master carver of, of carving this house. And he had about another 20 um, young local Māori um, helping for that. Uh, our, our local ladies were taught by a number of different kaumātua from around various areas that, that came back and, and helped revive the art. Because remembering too, at that time, uh, we were reviving um, these things here. And so a lot of time we were having to go outside of our area to source the expertise for people to come back and um, you know, help um, with the kaupapa. Would you have gone to the, to the North Island? Definitely, yep. yep. And so um, Te Arua, Ngāti Parau, they, those type of iwi um, all played an important part in, in terms of developing th- this complex here. Kapai Kylie. Okay, so as I mentioned before, we're um, standing under the uh, the maho. Now, Kylie, I'm interested to know. We can see the 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 um, front of the Farinui here, where, where the Manuhiri walk on. Um, what's can you describe what what that is in the in the corner? Sure. So uh, so we've got our we've got our waharoa, um, and then to the right, um, if you're facing from outside the the Faritupuna, to the right is a pahu. Um, and that pahu was made um, during a Ngāpuna Waihanga, which is a Māori Arts and Crafts Festival that we hosted here. Again, that was one of the big significant hui that we hosted back in the day. And a number of artists, um, the Hidden Melbourne, um, Richard Nuns, those type of people helped to develop that, that pahu. Um, and at that time, it was the first pahu in contemporary times to be built and, and to to um, to be standing like that on a marae. Uh, so the, the pahu is a, a, a Māori drum, um, and it was used throughout different occasions, but normally throughout pōwhiri, and, it, and it's, got a, a, it's got a tangi, a reo, and a sound of, of its own. Um, and then just over to the corner by the whare nui, we've got oh, a... Uh, we, we've got a kohatu, mm. a, a carving of taranga, um, Maui's mum Taranga and in her hand she is holding her little um, baby Maui um, and you'll notice that um, her hair is cut off Yes, um, she's got a short hair because of course the story of Maui goes that you know when he, he, he died, well when she thought he died she um, cut his hair off um, but you'll see that there's a big quite a high fence there um, the story goes that when the stone was on the other side and it was being lifted up by cranes to be placed over here, and it was at this time it's, it's just a big block of, of, of stone and nothing had been carved in it. The ladies were in the, were in the kitchen um, and they seen this big block of stone being lifted over and they said, oh, there's a, there's a woman in that, uh, in that stone. And they told um, the carvers, they said, oh, you know, there's, there's a woman, we can see a, a woman figure in there. And so um, that's how um, it, it ended up being taranga. So from... 
the, the vision that the lady's seen and the, uh, the craftsmanship of the carvers, then, then that's, how, um, that's how... So as that um, stone was being lifted by the crane, the, obviously the, 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 the queer had a good view from the, yeah, across the yeah. way. Oh, and right, you could have just yeah. imagined, you know, uh, you know um, it's not every day a big hunk of stone gets lifted <laughs> over the fence, Very so, you true. know, everybody's out there going, far out, what's <laughs> happening? And that was the call from the kitchen, oh, we can see a lady in there, so... Um, the, you know, the, yep. the, the men went with that call and, and, and that's what happened. And that's why how Taranga yeah. was formed. Oh, this here is the, um, is the um, is of commemorating the opening. Um, and it says, Te Raho Te Waipaunamu opened 27th of October 1985. The people of Ōmakamarae place on record their deep appreciation to His Excellency Sir David Betty and Lady Betty for their part in the formal opening of our Whareirunanga Te Aroha Te Waipaunamu, unveiling the dining room Te Waiora and Gateway Te Waharoa. To the Ngaitahu people, we have named the Popo Tahuaraki in honour of the Rangatira for their part in conducting the dawn ceremony and lifting of the tapu. Te Tohunga ki te heki te tapu, led by Ari Brenner, Mokopuna of Te Huatahi Aroha Tracy Bond performed the traditional function as Pohi Maiden. Te Kenehi Taylor, the Weddle Challenge, um, and then it's got the Marae Executive, uh, President Laurie Duckworth, Vice President Kate Mason Moses, Secretary Kath Hemi, Treasurer Peggy Toomes, Taha Māori, Kimu Taitoko, and Kohangareo K. McDonald. So those are part of the, 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 the group that, that helped to, um, to develop the Marae. Okay, so um, we are going to move into the inside of the Whare Nui, Te Aroha o Te Waipaunamu. So why, why the name, Kylie? I mean, uh, it's pretty self-explanatory, the love yeah, of the yeah, South well, Island. Um, and again, you know, th- this is my version, other people's version could, um, could differ, but the, the kōrero that I have heard was that when the Komato were deciding on a name for the Whare Tūpuna, one of the names that came up were specific to our, um, our Rangitane people. So knowing that Rangitane are the mana whenua of, of Umakamurai, um, and we come under, un, under that, that, that mana. Um, but because Umakamurai was going to be seen very much as a communal marae, then for Nga Hauefa, for, for, for all types of people, then we wanted it to be quite an, an inclusive um, name. And so we thought that Te Aroha o Te Waipaunamu, which talks about our love for this area, uh, really is, is an all-encompassing kaupapa. So I, I guess as we, as we enter into the Whareinu, one of the things that um, hits you first uh, is the big, long mural here. So when you walk into the Whareinu, on your left-hand side, we've got this big, long mural. Uh, the mural was done by a local artist um, who, who is world-renowned now. Uh, Brian Baxter is his name. And pretty much it talks about... Well, the beautiful thing about it is, is um, it's open to interpretation. Um, but it pretty much starts from um, te hekinga mai o ngā tūpuna, um, and, and that could be from a generic tūpuna coming to Aotearoa, or it could be as specific as our tūpuna coming here and settling into the wairau. Mm. Um, so, so you'll see that you've got the, the waka haurua um, with their sail, um, and you know, and that in itself is a good education tool, you know, because when we're talking about the the sea-going vessels that our tūpuna travelled on, we're not talking about little stink little canoes with, with paddles on them. You know, we use them, yeah. but that's no not. Rest. You know, when we come over, it was 150 people with enough provision, and you know, they were circumnavigating and all those type of things. Um, 
then next we've got this uh, a face of a Māori tūpuna, um, and beneath him are all those luxuries that, that we um, have here in Te Tauihu. Kai moana. Uh, kai moana, kaura, paua, kina, kina. Uh, pātiki. Um, so, and again, you know, when, when we have, in terms of our manakitanga, uh, when we have those type of hui, then um, you know that, that's the type of kai that you would normally see here. And then you come down. Man, it's long. It takes up the whole length of the farinui. Yeah, and, and again, you know, when we uh, when we when we built this farinui, you know, we we're breaking new ground. So whilst we done it within a, a, a traditional sense. Yes. There were some things that we just thought, oh, actually, no, that'll be pretty cool. We'll, we'll have a go at that. And and to to my knowledge, there still aren't any, if any, uh, marae that have a mural of this um, this this length. In, yeah, no, I I have it. And and so yeah. the artist is Brian Baxter. Brian Baxter. Um, and so then the next stage talks about the native forest, and again, that's about Māori coming to Aotearoa and learning how to um, interact and utilise the resource. Um, you've, you've got the, the hapu and the whānau down here felling trees and starting to develop. Uh, the next setting is the village life. Um, and then down from there we have um, gathering kaimoana. See, now the, the, the interesting thing down here is... Um, what you'll notice, you know, they're out gathering kaimwana and yep. they're not having to go right out, um, you know, they're not even having to get wet to, <laughs> to, to go out and get those type of pippies. And I, I have an auntie that re, re, recalls a, a story that, and, you know, going back maybe about 15, 20 years ago, she has a contemporary story about this type of thing and she, she remembers about going to 21st and that and stopping off by the the... The, the beach in her high heels to go out and, and get you know get a feed of um, of kaimana to be able to put onto the the table without even her high heels getting wet and because that's know. how plentiful because it that, was because that, that that was the reality that they used to live in and so you know it's really cool when you see it within a traditional context and then when you've got Fana uh, who actually remember you yeah, know we remember those days when we could just go out and get a kaimana without even getting wet mm. then the next um, scene is about pakanga. Uh, or two. Uh, pakanga being war. Pakanga being war, um, and and again um, that part of our society, and then um, the coming of Pakia European, uh, represented by James Cook, and so and there, there's a nice little um, there's a nice little picture down here of. Of Māori giving um, Captain James Cook a bit of a handshake. I'm not too sure if it was that friendly when, when, when the first encounter happened. And the other thing too is that we're, we're able to use this as a storyboard because everybody gets it. And so when we have school groups in here, we, we break the sections down. Right. Um, and then you know when we come to this particular um, part, we're able to talk about biculturalism and you know that this is the start of the new nation. And you know, um, none of us can say that we're either just Māori or just Pākehā. You know, we. we um, we have a mixed heritage. And there's a mighty big picture of James Cook right Yeah, yeah, there. yeah, looking very um, stylish. <laughs> so um, how long did it take Brian to um, complete this, this, um, um, this I mean, mural? I'm not too sure on the exact time, but it was a mammoth task. He actually got, um, he actually done a very small version first. And then after that, then it was decided that he would be able to, to um you know, to carry the task out, and and you know, there's even even within this story, there are there, there's, there are little things that are hidden here. So, 
Um, when we come to this scene uh, where the village is working, so on and so forth, what you'll notice um, is that there's a whare here, um, and then right next door to it there's a pātaka there. Well, there was a pātaka, um, which is a storehouse. And so he drew a, a storehouse here, and then uh, one of the kaumātua come up and said, oh, actually, Brian, we don't know if you know you should be having pātaka that close to the whare tūpuna. Yes. Um, so with a flick of the brush, uh, you can't tell that there's a pātaka there now. So, so you know, there's all these trees um, covering it. So. so he was guided along by the kaumātua Very here on, on, yep. on what he basically what was appropriate yep. to paint. And yeah, and I guess too, when you um, turn it over to um, the carved walls and the, the tukutuku panels and those things, when you stand back at this distance, you can get a real appreciation of the colours. The beautiful colours, yellows, um, greens, and, reds. And they're all traditional colours too, you know, and they come from kukawai, they come from clay, they come from berries. You know, sometimes we think that our people just done, you know, red, white and blue, uh, red, white and black. black. But these are very much traditional colours that our, our people um, utilised. And these tukutuku panels were done by the, the, the queer of the marae or through the Maxis? Maxi, um, very much through the Maxis course. Again, guided through our, our kuia, Um And we were lucky enough to um, have Emily Schuster, a well-known yeah. ahorangi whoraranga, um, come down. And she uh, mentored a couple of our ladies and those ladies um, and others um, helped to, to, to weave those panels. Some are very traditional, um, like the Niho Tanifa pattern, um, Takitoru pattern, um, and then there are some that are very um, contemporary and unique to, um, to us. So one of, the, one of the very unique ones is the, the first one, which is called Keipote Te Wairau, and we were talking about that whakatauki before, uh, which means the sun will always shine on the wairau. So up the, up, up the top you'll see a very uh, nice representation of Tamanui Te Ra, um, and then through the middle of the tukutuku you've got um, the wairau river, and then on the, on the side you've got Tapuwai o Uenuku. Um, so, you know, it's a very contemporary-looking tukutuku panel, um, and, and again, um, the 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 Fakaro would get um, submitted um, to the Komatu Council, um, and then they would, um, you know, they would have the last say to, to say whether or not it would um, end up in the Farinui. So all the Po have the names of the Po uh, above them. Yeah, which is really handy when you're doing the tour, <laughs> um, and, and you forget. But again, it's about it's about making things easy. And, and remembering that we've forgotten how well we 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 become illiterate in being able to read tukutuku and popo, um, and so it, it helps when the name of that tupuna is, is above them, so that you know when we have manuhiri in here, um, and they're able to come in straight away and make a connection with say um, kahungunu um, or, or rangitane, so on and so forth. So the the, the front wall here, um, this is. Quite a generic wall, but it represents those iwi that were very staunch in terms of the revival of Te Ao Māori. And again, this is around the 60s to 70s. And so um, this, this popo up here is about, about the kingitanga. Um, and then under, under our matapihi, we've got two popo here that represent Te Arepa me Te Omeka, um, and that talks about um, the Ratana faith and, mm-hmm. and, and Ratnapa, and we, we've got a very strong connection uh, with our whanaunga up there. Um, the, the po in the middle here um, talks about Tainui, 
Um, and then to the other side of our door, we've got a carving of Tamate Kapua, um, of course representing Te Arua. Te Arua Waka. Um, and that talks about our connection with, with Te Arua um, in terms of um, the development of the marae, in terms of them assisting us with the knowledge. Such as Emily Shuster. Yeah, yep. yeah. And, and again, Te Puya. Um, and then in the corner, we've got a, a picture of Paikia, and that, that tūpuna from, from Ngāti Parau East Coast. And again, uh, there was a very strong influence with some of the, the Ngāti Pro kaumātua that used to sit here and, and help us keep our pipe warm. So inside Te Aroha o Te Waipaunamu Wharenui, still continuing our kōrero with um, Kylie about the, uh, about the paipo. Kura haupo o Ngāti Apa. Ngāti Apa is the local iwi. Yeah, so... Um, that talks about one of our iwi um, and our connection through Kurahopo to, to Ngāti Apa. Um, and so Ngāti Apa um, come up from around the Rangitike uh, area and uh, from just out of, out of Wanganui. Um, and they... And then a, a branch of them started to, to voyage down, down into um, the top of the South Island. Um, as those voyages and migrations became uh, more so and, and we started settling here, then we changed our name to Ngāti Apakitarato, which means Ngāti of the setting sun. Um, so you could imagine when our tūpuna were coming across the Cook Strait, you could see the, um, the sun setting. Um, so that's, um, yeah, that, that, that's why that is in there. So all these popo representative of, of, of the various links? Very much so. So all of them talk about the different links that we have um, to to our different um, iwi that we have links, either through our kurahopo or, or through other whakapapa ties. And once again, the, the master carver was? Uh, Reggie Tomset. Again, I mean, I think he was only around 25 when he um, built the house, so you wow. know, a, a big undertaking. So now we've reached the rear end of the of the Fare Tupuna Fare Nui, where you have photographs of of the the Fano here. Yeah, um, and and again, it's only a small selection of some of our people that have passed away. And you know, for us, it, it's really important to have these photos in here. Um, it's really important to remember those of our our people that have passed on. Um, for me, these photographs are just a contemporary version of our popo. Um, and, and again, when I'm talking to our kids and that, and and, and you put it to them in that way, then it, it's easier for them to understand what a popo actually is, because sometimes we forget that these popo were actually people as well. But yeah, these are some of our kaumātua and some of our young people that have passed away that have been part of our marae. So Kylie, if we, as we, if we come a bit closer, there's a glass case um, attached to one of the popo here. This is a little tonga box. Um, so inside of it there, are, there is a more bone um, and there's also ponamu in there. And the description says, Ngahue was a tohunga o Matahaurua canoe with kupe who discovered Aotearoa. It is reputed when they returned home, Ngahue took the bone of a giant bird moa and a greenstone. This meeting house is called Tauraho Te Waiponamu. All of this symbolises the discovery of New Zealand. And again, you know, there are um, underneath, um, in there is the, one of the first documents of the plans of the marae. And so, you know, oh, it's kind of like a little pututanga Māori thing for us as well. Um, That's a great story. Yeah, yeah. So there are just little bits and pieces around there that, that you know, everybody has a, 
piece of the story and yeah that that freaks people out when we um you know tell them that that's a more bone and of course you know when you're looking at our history um the the more hunter the, the so-called more hunter is very much a reality of our, our people and recently we uh were able to go down and reclaim and bring home our tupuna from the Canterbury Museum there were um Tupuna bones, koiwi that we right. went back and and um, as a whakatiki, as a um, and we the repatriation, uh, we we went down and we got our tupuna home and we went and buried them about out at the Waito. Yes. Um, but when when we brought them home, there was quite a number of more bone um, lying around. And that must have been a very um, emotional period for the whānau here to bury the the um, the the, the uh, So our part in it was that. We, um, the Wharitūtau, were here. We were asked to um, go down as kaitaki um, and, and lead the way and clear the way for, for the whānau and to be an escort to, to bring the um, tūpuna home. Um, now, I, I've been to a number of um, kaupapa Māori hui and that would be the most raw emotion I've ever seen and felt and heard. And, you know, I mean, it was uh, it was the biggest tangi that I've ever been to, biggest porupuraki that I've ever been to, um, and the emotions were just raw. And it was nice, you know, because our, our, our people have been trying to right this wrong for so many generations, and it was actually nice to, to see into it um, and to be part of righting that wrong. Um, yeah, yeah, so it was um, it, it was something that we definitely won't see again. Um, and it was really cool to be part of, and, and especially bringing them um, the, the tupuna home here to, to Omaka, um, so that they, they they rested here a night, and then we took them out to the Waido. Um, that oh, was. So they did actually come into the to the marae. Yeah, yeah, yep. yep. So they came in. They they laid down here um, as if it was a tangi, and we had, gee, maybe about I think it was about six coffins, all filled with different parts of um, koiwi tangata, mm. um, heads, um, knuckle bones. Jawbones, so on and so forth, and um, and the next day, and then the next day we uplifted them and um, went out to uh, the Waito Bar, uh, which is the the area where these people originated from, our Tupuna originated from, and um, reburied them out out there. Was there a sense of relief after that um, emotional burial? Yeah, yeah, very much so, because again, it was a long process. Um, it had been. Uh, and again, I only played a small part in this. Um, so this was really administered through Te Rurangu Rangitane, which is our, our iwi. Um, and the likes of Richard Bradley and Judith MacDonald are the ones that really um, were, were the champions of this kaupapa. Um, but it, it was nice to, to play a little part in that. There was definitely a sense of relief. But leading up to it, we had an opportunity to go out and um, walk the area where our tūpuna used to um, be. Um, and so there were um, archaeologists out there um, doing different tests because what we didn't want to do is we, we didn't want to upset other tūpuna when we were putting them back in. So we wanted to make sure that the area was clear that we were going to rebury them into. And so these archaeologists were able to find out a whole lot of different things about our tūpuna, um, what they ate. Um, you know, we'd go over, well, one day we went out there and there was this pit and the archaeologist said to us, oh, you know, because this, this and this, you can start to see that um, there was a little house here, there was a veranda here. Um, the guy that was here was a, um, he used to um, do stoneworking. You actually can tell that he's um, right-handed and that he was kneeling on his left knee and all this kind of stuff. And you're just sitting there Whoa. going, so it's, you know, that CSI kind of stuff. And, yeah. Um, 
the night when we brought our tupuna back here, we uh, the archaeologists came up and they gave us a um, a presentation, and they had this PowerPoint presentation. And um, during uh, heading towards the conclusion of their uh, presentation, um, they say they said to us, and there was I oh, know about. 200, 300 of us in here, and they said, oh, and this is what your tūpuna looked like, and they pushed this button, and these, these two pictures of, of our tūpuna come on, because what they were able to do was to take their, um, the their, remains. their remains and, and develop a, you know, a scan and, and see what they, they look like. And so these two pictures of these, um, of these men popped up onto the screen, and everybody's sitting there going, whoa. <laughs> and then we're just sitting there freaking out, and the next minute you're like, Hey, cuz, you've got his nose. Hey, bro, you got his lips. And so, you know, so different, different Fano and and the iwi were, were were standing up next door to our tupuna, and people were cracking up because you could you could see the similarities. Nga marai o te motu. Kia ora, Kylie Napier. And Fano, there is a much longer version of that kōrero. Head to our webpage, radioNZ.co.nz forward slash teahika. Aneira, a himiona grace, or this week's fakatauki. Hey, kia ora, uh, ko hemi ona Grace, tēnei, he mihi tino nui ki a koutou katoa, uh, he uri no porairangi me pautama, uh, tēnā koutou. Ka hoki te rai tangata, ka hira te rai kai. When human importance recedes, that of food increases. To me this whakatauki talks about the material world um, being more important than the spiritual world and the physical world, and um, when you put the material things first, uh, it's people who sort of suffer for it. He'll be back with us in a few weeks' time. Him, Warren Maxwell and Marka McGregor are accompanying live music for screenings of the 1929 film Under the Southern Cross. That's here in Wellington on the 1st of August. Hey, and it's the Wiki o Te Māori coming up. It's at the end of the month. That's us. Tune in next week. It's Faka Tefa Tefa. And we're looking at Māori and the fashion world. And if you want to listen to this broadcast again, you can do so at radionz.co.nz forward slash te ahika. And you can always email us whānau at te ahika at radionz.co.nz. Kua e ata mātou wāhanga te ahika. He tuku mihi tēnei ki nā kai kōrero. Mina kai rā wiki wiki mihini. Hoki mai hei tērā wiki. Mauri ora tātou katoa.